I tipped you off in episode five as to what we were really up to with this first season, if not with the series as a whole. Remember? I said this. We are asking. Did our biggest nation-state adversary, our enemy, 40 years ago, at the height of the Cold War, invade us via our underworld? Did the KGB send its gangsters, who were also intelligence operatives, to our shores to infiltrate and hijack our own crime syndicate? Did the Soviet Union invade our democracy from our underworld up? Today, I sit down with someone who lived through the era of the Soviet Union's gangsters washing up on our shores, infiltrating our own crime families, and getting their foothold, an enemy's foothold, into our nation to corrupt us from the underworld up. This person worked at the FBI investigating Russian organized crime as a street agent in the years just after F.C. Agron's rule, when even wealthier and more vicious gangsters from the motherland planted their flags in our sand. He then went on at the Bureau to rise to the position of Deputy Director under Director James Comey. And with Director Comey's firing by Donald Trump, found himself appointed as Acting Director and squarely in the sights of a president who once sold condos and did business with those Soviet-born gangsters and, before them, with the Costa Nostra crime families that they invaded. Andrew McCabe To me, Andy McCabe is a hero and patriot, and I highly recommend his book, The Threat, How the FBI Protects America in the Age of Terror and Trump. And I can't think of a better person with whom to explore and discuss the theme, treasure, in this first season. I can't thank Andy enough for his life's work as a public servant and his willingness as a civilian to help educate us and inform us all about the world beneath. Let's begin. Well, hi, Andy McCabe. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm well. You can call me by my real name. You don't I have wasn't to. sure about that. I wasn't going to give you up right here on the recording. It's good okay. to see you, Stephanie. Thank you. It's good to see you. Um, so I want to talk about who you are as an FBI agent and what brought you into the FBI. I feel that there's a little bit of commonality here with me in terms of um, we both are really intrigued and stuck on in a way of like, there's a bigger picture going on here, right? Like, you know, how do we, how do we wrap our arms around understanding a much larger uh, landscape of, of players um, 
and sort of le- power levers in the world sure. um, that get pulled that sort of bring us to our current moment and how can we, in understanding that history and context, understand our current moment a little bit better. Um, so you're the perfect person to talk to. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know the answers to all those questions, but I do know my own experience. And I think, as you said, it's probably similar to your own kind of fascination with this stuff. I was just a law student in the early 90s. Um, I had gone to undergrad at Duke and then gone right into law school at Wash U in St. Louis. Didn't really know what I wanted to do, Um, but I was always kind of drawn to criminal law. And, And I should say, even before that, like I have always been... Um, a huge fan of the books of James Elroy. I don't know if you've ever read James oh, yeah, Elroy. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of them on the shelf here behind me. And in some, I got really, he managed to articulate this idea that had always kind of been in my head that he, he describes it in some of his earlier work as the wonder. Like um, it's this thing that compels you to, to start to see that there is a world around us that most people don't see, don't, don't participate in, don't live and don't interact with. And that is the world of crime. And it's like run and, and driven by people who are willing to just step outside the bounds of normal human interaction and to break the law and pursue their own advantage and, and profit kind of at, at any, you know, for, uh, in any way they can. And so I, I'd always had that kind of fascination with that kind of world off the books. Um, and I think that's what drew me to criminal law when I was in law school. Um, never. And really what year came. was that? That year was that? Uh, when 1990. 1990, okay. I started. And then as I got deeper into it, um, in the summer of 92, When most of my, so I was somewhere between my second and third year, most of my friends were doing like internships at law firms that they hoped to work for when, after they graduated, um, I came to DC and took a volunteer internship at the department of justice in the criminal division. And I spent most of the summer working on a big white collar case that they were investigating at the time about a sitting U.S. Senator and his brother who they thought were involved in a campaign finance scheme. And so I spent a lot of time reading these reports of FBI agents who had gone out and interviewed, you know, witnesses and people who had, you know, maybe who had been scammed and other people who had done some scamming and just all kinds of people. And these are the FBI agents would come back to their office and they they would uh, compile these reports on what's known internally as a 302, an FD 302. That's the, that's the report that uh, FBI agents fill out. And so I was reading these 302s all summer long. And it was like, all of a sudden, this was the, there was this key into this other world. It was like unlocking that mm. door into this, this kind of criminal existence. Corruption. Yeah. Yeah. That I had always kind of been fascinated with. And that's what really turned me on to this idea of becoming an agent. I was like, wow. I mean, you could actually, you know, find those people and talk to them and sit down across the table from someone and hear them say, yeah, I took the bag full of cash and I handed it, you know, to this politician or whatever. And just like being a participant in those conversations and hearing those stories, it was, uh, it was just fascinating to me. So I went back to law school with the intention of, of going into the FBI. 
And unfortunately, they were under a hiring freeze when I graduated in 93. So it was a couple of years before I could make my way to Quantico. But um, yeah, fortunately, I didn't I didn't give up on it. I as the <laughs> FBI application process drags on at a snail's pace, I I kept it rolling forward. So yeah, that's kind of what uh, what brought me in the door. And when you came out, when you when you graduated then from Quantico, where where were you first? Where did you land? So my first office was New York City. Um, New York, the New York field office is the largest field office in the FBI. They have fifty six yeah. field offices around the country, and about ten percent of the entire FBI works from the New York field office. It's huge. Yeah. Um, Interesting. I wanted, there must be a lot of criminals in the there are, <laughs> right? I mean, New, it's New York. So oh, bless New York. Yeah. God bless New York. No, yeah, I love New York. I'm from New York. Yeah, my family. So, you know, it's like uh, there's a lot of people, <laughs> they have a lot of energy and creativity, and uh, it's a lot know, of money. A lot, a lot of, money. of money goes the through financial industries there. And of course, the, the kind of history of organized crime in America. That's kind of right. traces most, not all, but most of its roots back to New York. And I think it's, the political yeah. corruption side of organized crime is, is, you know, for me, it's Tammany, right? It's uh, sure. that's where, yeah, that's where the big stuff went down. Um, that's you right. Know, it, yeah. So, and you have the this great history of these kind of different parts of the city that, like back in the day, were like different countries. You know, like the Five Towns yeah. area and uptown, downtown. You have the growth of Brooklyn from a, a borough of like farms and stuff, and. Yeah. And then it turns into what we know about today. So it's New York is kind of a microcosm for the whole world. Um, so the, the New York office, New York field office of the FBI is very similar. It's huge. There's, there's a ton of agents that work there. You can do unbelievably specific work. Like we're in a regular FBI field office. They might have like a violent crime squad that handles everything from like organized crime to kidnappings, fugitives, stuff like that. In New York, they have like an individual squad for every one of those kind of sub designations of crime. So you might have, you know, 15 people that do nothing but work fugitives. Um, in the organized crime area, there's an entire branch of several squads that work different organized crime groups. Um, so there's- And specialize on the families, right? That came out right. of Luciano's, uh, you know, the original group seven. That's right, so, that's yeah. right. So that's where yeah. I was originally assigned. I did my new agent rotation in New York, which is like, you know, learning the office and doing, learning how to do surveillance. And you do a lot of background checks for federal <laughs> people who are getting federal jobs, really boring work. You know, you come out of Quantico, yeah. you're ready to like kick in doors and throw handcuffs on people. And you find yourself, you know, knocking on someone's door and asking them whether their neighbor has ever advocated the overthrow of the U.S. government, which at that time seemed like an absurd question, although now I guess we realize how relevant it is. <laughs> I guess we do. Um, okay. And so how did you, you did end up, now this is one of the, um, as I've said to you, uh, you know, I grabbed your book in two seconds. <laughs> The, uh, when you put your, you know, which I would have done anyway, but in your, you know, the audience will appreciate this, I think, in your, you made a, you wrote a letter, um, we sort of, I feel like everyone, I want to say this to the audience now, you know, all kind of know what went down in 2017. I don't want to focus our time on that um, too much because it takes away from the actual expertise you have to offer this moment. Um, but you did. You did face that uh, 
that uh dismissal from uh, your job at the Department of Justice. And in there, you did write a letter uh, so that you could let people know, look, I'm going to let you know a little bit about myself. Uh, I thought that was very brave. Um, I was so happy to hear from you in your own voice, just so you know. Um, And the second line of that letter was, I started my career in the Russian organized crime street in, in New York. And I was like, huh? Oh my God. Right. So I had to grab it because um, I wanted to learn all about how you got onto that beat, how long you were on that beat, and some of the cases that you came across in the years. Um, you know, I opened this series with the with the assassination of FC Agron. So in the years not too long after that, that was 1985, you were about a decade later, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. So in, in that 10 years, you know, some folks have come in and <laughs> taken over what FC had, you know, the 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 land he'd plowed there. Right. The, and the seeds he'd planted uh, and really uh, we had these organized these criminals uh, from the former Soviet bloc all over uh, that former Soviet bloc connected into the intelligence services uh, that were formerly the, that were at the Kremlin, but formerly the KGB in our communities in New York That's right. That's and right. r- running their scams, right? Uh, and and committing all kinds of crimes uh, across the broad sca- uh, spectrum of extortion, murder, everything that organized crime is involved with in a much more brutal manner, in my opinion, and also with a lot more money. I didn't think we could surpass the money that our original bootleggers put together, but these guys came in with money. That's um, right. And, and formed alliances with our organized crime families, um, uh, what people call, end up calling the LCN, Cosa uh, Nostra, to run those scams and to make money with them and to provide muscle for them. And it was really a union began to form in those 10 years um, between Agron's death and your hitting the street. So that's my big setup. I want to hear all about it. <laughs> What you can share, I know there's lots you can't share, I'm sure. But, um, you know, what was, how did you end up on the Russia desk? What what happened? It was a stroke of what I thought was bad luck. And of course, it turned out to be a great thing. Um, I actually was first assigned to an Italian organized crime squad. And I, you know, as many new agents do, I started just by sitting there reading through these binders of 302s, of debriefings from sources and cooperators and things like that. And you try to learn, you know, the the group or the family that you're supposed to be uh, investigating. And in going through that material, I found something that um, I'm trying to be careful about this. I uh, found there was a person of interest um, in that group who had, uh, who I'd had a social uh, interaction with. Oh, how interesting. Years earlier. Uh, he was um, someone who my father knew. And so he actually attended my wedding. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, it was no. a friend of my parents and it had gone to my wedding. And so I thought, you know, this is a little bit weird. I mean, I, don't you wouldn't really even know the person if I ran into him on the street or anything. But so I brought the attention to my super, you know, like brand new agent, you know, you know, you want to be like very careful about everything. 
And so I went to my supervisor and I said, Hey, um, I don't know if this makes any difference, but I, you know, I pointed it out to him and he said, Oh yeah, we'll, you know, we'll move you off the squad, which was not what I wanted. And so then I spent about a day in limbo and they said, okay, we're going to move you over to the Russian squad. And I was just like, Oh my God, no way. I mean, I don't speak Russian. I don't know anything about Russians. You know, New York, kind of the LCN, La Cosa Nostra is kind of the thing, right? It's such a right. such a piece of the city. And I was like, oh, I felt like I was getting kind of banished, you know, to the to the to the you know the minor league or something. And oh my God, it was such a such a fortuitous turn of events because I arrived on the squad. And the supervisor, first of all, the supervisor was one of the best people I've ever known in my life. He's Uh, just an absolute stellar human being and a great leader. And he had, prior to his time in the Russian squad, he'd run the Asian organized crime squad and built it from nothing. Oh, wow. Successful, you know, squad in the office. And so they asked him to do the same thing with the Russian program. And so they gave him the squad. And then they gave him like a whole passel of brand new agents who knew nothing. We were all, we had all come in like within a year of each other. None of us knew what we were doing. And so it was literally like my, my supervisor's name was Ray Kerr and it was like Ray's daycare. I mean, he was just like trying to keep these, (laughs) you know, gung ho, no nothings, uh, pointed oh. in the right direction. And I was definitely one of those. But so it was a, it was an incredible environment to work for somebody who really knew what he was doing. It was so dedicated, um, not just to the work, but also to developing us as agents and, and men and women. Um, but also to grow through that experience with a bunch of like your best friends who were all having those same experiences at the same time. We were all like newly married and like buying our first houses and having our wow. first kids and stuff. So it was just a great, uh, it was a great time. And I was an agent on that squad for seven years. Oh boy. And, Following around the most dangerous criminals on the planet. Oh, Little did great. you know. <laughs> it was great. And then I was, the, I was fortunate to become the supervisor when Ray moved off the squad. So I was wow. seven years an agent and then three years as a supervisor. That when squad. was that? When were you supervisor? Do you remember? I was supervisor from like 2003 to 2006. Gotcha. Okay. Oh. And I was an agent from whatever that was, end of and like 96 to whatever that would be, 03. Okay. And so this was all still very much in the criminal division. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's in the criminal division you, of the New York Field you, Office. Were you getting any counterintelligence folks coming over? A going, little hey. bit. Yeah. So yeah. there were maybe two or three older agents on the squad who had who they had brought over from the Russian FCI, Foreign Counterintelligence Program, um, for, for that reason, right? To kind of right. bring us newbies along and provide some context that, you know, I didn't know anything about, you know, the diaspora of mostly Russian Jews who had come to this country in the seventies and eighties, because they were the only people who could get out of Russia. And they had been here for years. And so many of these New York um, Russian foreign counterintelligence program agents had been interacting with them for years because we would just do like standard, you know, interviews of immigrants and things like that. So, so they knew that kind of FCI approach to, trying to figure out what we have. And we were just like, yeah, that's interesting. But like, we know there's, 
there's drugs pouring through Brighton Beach. There's thefts and extortions, and and that's what we want to get our hands on. And we we did. We found it. It was sure enough was there. <laughs> it was, you know, it it was, uh, you know, there was bootlegging. They brought the bootlegging back. Um, uh, they brought the gasoline yeah, gas scams, um, and that was a way to demonstrate to. Uh, to the crime bosses, to the LCN crime bosses that they were partnering with, look at the kind of money we can make you. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. The weird thing was like, you know, the LCN owned the owned the turf, right? Yeah. The, the Italian mafia in New York, the lines, the battle lines of like who owned what na- which neighborhoods and therefore what revenue generating scams in those neighborhoods was well established. And really like their heyday of, of, earning was behind them yeah in cases about you remember the windows cases in new york and the garbage cases and they had done a pizza lot of connection the heroin connection, that got that all got that all stuff. disrupted yeah and then the concrete cartel that's right so they they really had taken it on the chin for about the previous decade or more um with the really aggressive use of the rico statute rico. of course mm-hmm. which is so important and also with things like civil forfeiture and civil re, civil RICO actions that have been brought in certain industries and um, against the unions and stuff like that. So they still had their turf, they still owned the ground and they could kind of control what happened in their neighborhoods and their areas of responsibility, but there wasn't a lot of money coming from it. And that's what the Russians brought to the table. No one was craftier and more creative and more aggressive in figuring out how to monetize things, monetize scams, than the Russians. They mm-hmm. couldn't do any of it without some involvement of Italian organized crime because you couldn't just go rolling into some neighborhood and start you know, reaping mm-hmm. all this criminal profit without sharing it and you know, building some, uh, some, some collaboration with the LCN. So they did that. They, they know that. I mean, these are guys who grew up in Russia, um, yeah. And so they knew, like you don't you don't run a scam in Russia without paying off your local MVD officer or the local NKVD or FSB officer. Like th- so, this was perfectly acceptable and kind of familiar to them. Yeah, and and they were uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union, especially. Um, there, the corruption was sweeping around there in a way that, and and when the authority was in there, was so brutal for many of these men came out of the gulags, had been persecuted, right, and really turned into gangsters in in prison. That's right. You know, God only knows what they could have done to get in there. A lot of those charges were all trumped up. Mm-hmm. Um, so they also had just a vast distrust of any kind of authority. It, it just they just had a completely different mindset um, coming over here. And um, a lot of them were, you know, as we know, <laughs> that to get to get over here, the KG, they had to kind of sign a little thing with the KGB saying, yeah, yeah w- once we get over there, we'll still work for you if you if you need us. And that's how they were permitted to have their visas. Now, many, many people who did immigrate in those years, the 70s, 80s, 90s, right before the uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, when they were the only ones able to get out from that Jackson Vennick, uh, they just got, got over here and said, forget it. <laughs> you know, I'm mm-hmm. over here. You mm-hmm. know, they were just fleeing real persecution. I think that gets lost when we talk about this sometimes. And I, I want to always be very careful to make sure people know that 
um, the Russian Jews were, were under tremendous assault in the Soviet Union and needed to get out. And, and that we helped them get out uh, was a great act of humanity that we did. <laughs> this is what makes us so special. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the recognition of the uh, recognition of the human rights need there, and all of the uh, the immigrant aid community, the Hebrew Im- uh, immigrant aid community that came to bear on that and really helped out. Wonderful, C- needed it. Yet it was also exploited <laughs> because right. the KGB is really crafty. These gangsters are really smart, really good. These are engineers. These were baking <laughs> scions, right? Some of That's them right. knew how to come in and do Wall Street scams. You know, they just came over with a force at a time when our Cosa Nostra families had had their heads co- chopped off That's from, right. from the big commission trial. And um, and we're kind of in the third, second, third generation of these families. And just like with, I think, you know... Uh, any kind of nepotism, any kind of system of, you know, the kids are just inheriting what their dads did. You don't necessarily get the the best of the bunch in there brain wise. <laughs> like they didn't they didn't cut a lot of these uh, of our LCN guys at that time just were born into the system. They didn't create it right. uh, like the original gangsters. And so they might not have been as savvy as to what was coming in and partnering with them. They just saw money. They just saw opportunity. That's right. Um, That's right. And they, and they were kind of, I think, uh, stunned by this wave of, you know, Russian speaking criminals just say, because most of them were from former Soviet bloc countries. So some of them weren't, didn't consider themselves Russian. Maybe they were from Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan or Ukraine or wherever, but they, commonality is that Russian language. And, you know, many of them just tried to portray themselves as businessmen, but it's really not business. It's, it's pure opportunism. Like their understanding of business goes no further than like, if I can steal this and sell it for whatever, that's a hundred percent profit. Or if I can buy it for a dollar and sell it for five, you know, like that's it. There's no like (laughs) marketing and, you know, uh, market share. No, it's no. just all about like profiteering advantage. Uh, yeah. Profiteering. That's all. It yeah. Is. And, yeah, well, and even at that, it was an, it was um, a really vital time for the LCN. It was, you said it become kind of moribund. And, and here you have guys that came up with the, you know, the gas scams and uh, I mean, they were just like, they didn't know what to do with all the money. They, they didn't. Um, I think I was supposed to say things like, this is where we take a break. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I I miss that in almost every single uh, sit down I've done, uh, but I'll say it here so that the producers know. They put a little break in, and and we'll be right back with Andy McCabe because there's a there's um there was some gambling going on in the in the in the Russian immigrant community and the gangsters, and I want to come back and talk about that a little bit in that case, which you detail in your book, which was so well done. I really appreciate okay. that. Yeah. Okay. So we'll be right back, everybody. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Okay, we're back. It's good to be back. It's good to be back with Andy McCabe. Let's talk poker and the Olympics, because somehow they're connected when you get into Russian organized crime. (laughs) So uh, you you were on a case. Now, at what point were you on? And I really, truly, my brain can't pronounce this man's name. Okay, what is is it? His first name is Alamzin, and his last name is Taktahunov. Taktahunov. Okay, so I'm talking to Hunov. That's it. Um, You got it. See, now you'll have it forever. (laughs) Talk to Hunov. We don't know who Hunov is, and we don't really know who this man is. We know who he is, but he fled. He's been... He's been persona non grata for quite a while. So he, what he year- was arrested in Italy and he okay. fled. He, he, he was indicted by the United States, by us, by our squad. And he, we served that uh, process on the Italians. They arrested him and mm. he kind of worked through every level of appeal in Italy. And it was only at the very, very last stage when I, as I understand it, his whether or not to extradite him was in front of the Italian, the, you know, the Italian equivalent of the Supreme Court. And they decided not to extradite him. And they actually made arrangements to have the facility, his detention facility, let him go before they informed the United States government. Oh, wow. Okay. So let's back up a little bit. Let's back up a little bit. Okay. So a big old Russian gangster who was running some major scams um, right. in New York City. Uh, you guys come in and you get him for what? And what year was it? So this is going to be um, in the aftermath of the Olympic Games in Salt Lakes, which was in 2002. Hmm. So this is probably like, I don't know, end of 2002, maybe beginning of 03, um, right around that time. And yeah, eventually what we... What we discovered was that he was involved in this kind of complicated scheme to rig the Olympics. Um, there was like a uh, there was a kind of an exchange of votes, and it was the Russians wanted to win. I think it was um, ice dancing. They wanted the gold and the ice dancing. That's right. That's right. And then uh, they made some sort of arrangement with a another Olympic judge said the French, I think, would then win gold in, I don't remember what the other event was, but it was a pretty explicit Rig- quid pro quo. Rigging the Olympics, right? That's and right. this was when Putin was president at this time. It's just sort of important to make sure we keep that mm-hmm. mental note there. Um, and for the uh, uh, the country of Russia, it was very important that we have this win. So was he was he rigging it with any thought? Was there any thought or connection? And maybe you can't speak to this, that there was something coming from Moscow saying, hey, make sure we, we win something. Or was he just running a, a, a scam um, where he could do gambling? Do we know? Well, it's hard to know. Okay. Um, and I don't believe 
that that was clear in his indictment. So I'm trying to be trying to keep myself yeah. to. Okay, we're going to move on. Let's move on. Okay, <laughs> we don't, I don't want to. It's also hard to imagine that one guy really cared that much about ice dancing. I don't know. I mean, that's just my opinion. <laughs> but hey, you know, you take it for what it's worth. I really like ice dancing. I got to say, <laughs> I do. I find it. I always think it's going to be silly or something. And then I watch it and I'm like, this is really thrilling. Okay. So, so how much would you be willing to pay to make sure that the person you wanted to win won? So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'm not that invested in it. Exactly. Yeah. So, exactly. Okay. So you pick this up somehow that he's, mm-hmm. he's running this, this sort of rigged system around the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And then what, what happens then? So he's charged in the Southern District of New York. Now he was not here, um, and of course, because Olympics, he had residence there. What, yeah, or was the money going through there? I can't remember at this point. It may have been the money transfer that gave okay. the SDNY venue. But um, you know, we used to say uh, jokingly, of course, that if the air someone breathed at one point passed over the island of Manhattan, then that gave the Southern District venue because there's basically nothing. They wouldn't charge. They'd figure out a way to get it done, uh, which I then relied on many times in my later career. But so they charged him with, I believe, sports bribery. And uh, that was the substance of our indictment. We were able to give that, as I mentioned, to the Italians and they uh, arrested him on that charge. Okay. And where was he? Where did he, had he flow, fled to in Italy? Was he in Naples? Was he in, do you remember? I'll have I to look remember. that up. I just remember he was in some okay. villa populated with what you would expect from a, okay. a Russian, a successful Russian criminal uh, yeah. surrounded by everything you would imagine in a villa. Everything you imagine. Nice cars, beautiful women. Got that's it. That's exactly right. And that's um, where he was snatched out of. And that's where he snatched. Well, I, I, I think it's not a little tiny data point that Italy uh, was his place to run to, considering the, the what we just discussed with um, how embedded, you know, a, a particular, especially a particularly connected group of um, uh, what Robert Friedman, the great author, called Red Mafia yeah. and the Soltovskaya, um, that they're sort of overreaching this sort of international transnational organized crime empire which did include italy and which and here we were with here he was these folks were partnering with the lcn sure um okay so what else did we find out about this guy let's let's connect that to the gambling because i find that i find that fascinating so yeah, years later, we learned that he, is, now this was a case that uh, the New York office brought long after I had left. So I don't have the same sort of, um, I didn't have the same sort of personal involvement in it. Right. I certainly don't have that sort of detailed recall, but as I understand it, they were pursuing a gambling case and they discovered that essentially Taktahunov was running a gambling operation out of, I guess, an apartment or an office in Trump Tower, which was, mm-hmm. you know, not far from a couple floors away from, uh, I think, Trump's own either office or residence. I don't remember at this point. But mm-hmm. yeah, so the so the place got raided and um, and that, you know, it, it was, it was like it was money laundering as well. There was a lot of art involved. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the Heli Nahab, uh, Nahab. I can't say his name either. <laughs> Apologize for that, um, but there were uh, there are some folks involved in that whole uh, 
gambling ring, which was really also about money laundering and moving money through um, into our markets through these great big games they would play, you know, with massive hands, you know, high stake, high, high stakes poker. Um, uh, And one of whom got pardoned. I thought that was really that was I didn't miss that name on the list there, Andy. I saw that name. I was like, (laughs) what do you know? What do you know? Nobody was putting their name on that either. Some of them were like, oh, this is recommended by you know Thomas Barak is recommending this person get pardoned. That one was just like this couch by itself, you know, Hallie. And it was like, oh, over here to the side. Oh, yeah, we, yep. we, we pardoned. What do you know? What do you know? What do you know? What do you know? Okay. Yeah. Well, we also had another, um, another Russian gangster. In fact, a boss um, come through that building, um, also spent some time uh, at Taj Mahal, talking about poker and gambling, uh, moving some money through there, apparently, that the FBI was hot after for quite a while and eventually got a guy by the name of Vyasha Livovankov. I could say his name, <laughs> little <laughs> Japanese. <laughs> um, and you mentioned, uh, yeah, Yaponchik, um, which was actually, he took that from some other gangster before, some mm-hmm. other uh, legendary, you know, figure in, in, in Russia before him. So he liked to name himself. A lot of times, you know, the LCN gangsters, they get their names from, you know, you had Joey the Sox Lanza. So, you know, it, it, right, it, it right. got their name. But he, he gave himself his own name so that he could become a legend uh, for his own uh, power grabs and his own ambitions. Uh, also connected with Russian intelligence. Also came over here, Avoy Vizikonia, out of the out of the gulags, already with the stars and mm-hmm. uh, tattoos. Um, a very dangerous man. Um, and he came... Right about in those days that you were starting on that Russia desk, I think a little earlier, I think he was here in 92. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, his case and, came down just just a, year, a couple of years before I got to the squad. Yeah. So did you work on that at all? Or did you? what did you learn from that case? What did, what do we have to learn from, um, from Ivankov, who he was, well, what he did? Sure. So the two agents who were responsible for that case were um, Mike McCall and Les McNulty, and they were both legends in the Russian organized crime, very small, I should add, Russian organized crime community in the FBI. Les, by the time I got to the squad, had moved. I think he went to the Boston field office, but he was somebody we remained in close contact with. And I actually traveled with Les to Ukraine uh, on a director's trip once, and I think also to St. Petersburg. So I, I had the I was fortunate to work with him and kind of benefit from some of his guidance. Mike McCall was on the squad the whole time I was there. Um, Brilliant guy. uh, Learned Russian, I think, as a cadet at West Point and spoke such perfect, like, um, native Russian that he was Louis Free's uh, essentially a translator of choice. Every time uh, Director Free would go to a Russian-speaking country, he would take Mike with him to wow. uh, kind of translate all of his meetings and stuff. But in any case, so a case like that, once you have, you know, it goes through a prosecution as that one did, that takes some time. And then even if when that's over, you're never really done because a guy like Yuponchik or uh, Ivankov gets thrown in jail and then you have to really keep track of what he's doing in jail. So, you know, communications are all monitored in federal facilities. So you have to keep up with like, who is he talking to? What are they saying? And periodically, um, depending on the person and their inclination to do this, you would go meet with them. So Mike was definitely still very invested in kind of working Ivankov and all the tentacles and things that had come off of that case. So um, it was it was a lesson, right? As a young agent to see 
that level of professionalism. And, you know, there wasn't a question about Ivankov that Mike McCall couldn't answer. Um, and wow. to see how like it really becomes your personal responsibility to know everything about this other human being and all of their friends and associates and relatives and the wider world of their of their contacts. And um, so it's a it's kind of a never really ends for the agents involved in something like that. Wow. So in knowing and kind of learning about these these individuals, right, very dangerous criminals some of them crime bosses, um, mm -hmm. some of them lieutenants, but I, I try to focus on the big name bosses because they were the ones really um, making the decisions. <laughs> and I think you can learn studying them. Um, for me, I learn a lot about how the, uh, what the operations are, what the intentions are, and what they're connected to. There isn't a boss that isn't connected to something else, right? That's it's, right. Um, especially when it comes to the Russians. Um, so, uh, over he comes. We know he's connected to intelligence. Was there, what was the FBI's understanding at the, that time when he was pursued and arrested of how his own connections within Russian intelligence, maybe was he communicating back to there? I'm trying to kind of, and not come to any conclusions, but just sort of give people an understanding of how the Kremlin used these men what the Kremlin may have known, what they were, wh what the actions may have been, where was it just cowboying on behalf of these mobsters and just setting up their own stuff? Or sometimes was there an intent, right? Was there a, here's your mission, go over there and <laughs> get in there with these uh, American gangsters and get control over what they've got because we want our foothold over there. You know, it's really interesting because Russian organized crime, like our own Italian organized crime or Asian organized crime or, you know, any other ethnic group that, that has engaged in that here, the Russians have their own mythology. And it's, it's born some, from some facts, some truths, but really grows far beyond that. It becomes a tool that they use to their own advantage to explain, you know, where they come from or how they think about things or to kind of pump up their reputations and that, and become yeah. more fearsome. So the whole idea of Vori Vizikon, so the, that you become a criminal, that you are taken into and, and, and indoctrinated into the criminal world. And, you know, you have these experiences in Russian prisons, that that's how, that's how you, you know, earn your Vor stripes as it were. And their, their ethos is that once you are in that world, you can never participate with the regular um, lawful world on any level. So you can't pay taxes. You can't, um, you, you, you have nothing but disrespect and hatred for every element of, you know, government and power and law. And you just live as an entirely independent criminal person. And so that goal kind of drives them, but it's also, they don't, they, they don't actually live up to that. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, they, in, v, in somebody like Ivankov's um, uh, situation, like that's his convenient kind of first line of defense against saying like, are you cooperating with the Russian governments? Do you have interactions with intelligence services? For him, he's like, oh, you know, I'm a vor. Look, just look at the tattoos on my yeah. chest and my knuckles and like, you know, I would know, you know, I, I spit on them and yada, yada, yada. So there's no 
overt kind of obvious connections there, not with him or really with anyone um, that, um, that I can think of. But you also have to remember that those kinds of like the Russian intelligence services are incredibly adept at keeping tabs on and keeping track of Russians in this country. That's what they do. And when they're, you know, Russian, we think of spies who are trying to steal our secrets and they certainly would like to do that. But a lot of their time is spent, you know, keeping track of people who are here, who they are interested in for whatever reason, maybe because they were political opponents back in Russia now labeled terrorists, what have you, or maybe because they're people whose whose lot in life here in the United States, be it criminal or otherwise, is something they want to be able to profit from, be connected yeah. to. And so, you know, um, is, is my belief that those sort of contacts, that sort of influence, it doesn't stop. When you're, if you're Ivankov and you get on the plane in Moscow and it lands in, at JFK, it's not like you're free from that. Um, yeah. You just all of a sudden start meeting someone else on the, on the street corner or wherever it is. Yeah. And they all seemed very directed into one particular area. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they had a, they had a territory, this, it was the same territory and they had uh, residences right alongside mm -hmm. people we do know were right. Russian intelligence That's officers. Right. It was a community that was coming together right. um, as sort of a wave. Talk to me a little bit about enterprise theory and what that is, because you, you get into that in your book as yeah. an operational sort of mindset. And maybe we can connect that back to sort of this broader world we're trying to decipher and understand a little bit. What sure. is enterprise theory? So the enterprise theory of investigations is, is actually, you can trace it all the way back to the time at which we didn't do it, which was those years under J. Edgar Hoover, where the FBI never really officially acknowledged the presence and the activity of organized crime in America. So, you know, I'll leave it up to you to figure out why Hoover would not have <laughs> wanted to do that. I'm, I, 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 I don't go gentle on him. I'm gonna, I, no you'll you hear should. it. Yeah, I, I kind of eviscerate yeah. him, you know, just for the fact alone that he got rid of the only two female agents that were in there before he came and then he, and then nobody came in, no other woman was allowed in the FBI until he was dead. Yeah. 72, right? 72 yeah, or 73. 50 yeah, 50 years, 50 years. I mean, that's enough for me. <laughs> yeah, for real. It's, he, yeah. uh, you know, but he, he did, he did know some gangsters. He did. Oh, of course he did. Of course, he, there's nothing he didn't know. If you're going to give the guy credit for something, give him credit for what he knew, because apparently it was everything at the time, uh, yeah. everything worth knowing. But yeah. yeah, so from, you know, Appalachian to all the early organized crime activity, the FBI kind of looked the other way on. And that all changes um, through right the through the 70s with the congressional hearings on organized crime yeah. the Valachi Joe Valachi testimony um, the work of people like Bobby Kennedy who kind of really sunk his teeth into it and wouldn't let it go um, and so after kind of getting embarrassed about that eventually and then of course the development of the RICO statute so the racketeer influenced corrupt yeah. organization statute um, all of a sudden now we have this incredibly powerful legal tool that would enable us to 
conduct much broader organizations. So what we've been doing up until that point was going after individual gangsters for individual crimes. And that may be satisfying at the time, but it doesn't do anything about the organization. And, you know, gangsters can be replaced uh, pretty quickly, pretty easily. Um, so the organizations went on and continued to, to grow and, and you know, rend a, a more kind of negative impact on, on life in New York City and other places. So with, when RICO comes along, you have the opportunity to take out entire, entire uh, um, organizations in one prosecution, right? Everybody who, can, who you can prove is a part of that, um, of that organization kind of takes the weight for all of the crimes of the organization. Very, very tough uh, law. And so with that powerful tool, the FBI had to develop a way to conduct investigations that it had never done before. We had to think about things like, like I talk about in the book, association evidence. So it's just as powerful and just as necessary in a, in a investigation of a organized crime group to show that people are connected. So yeah. like, a, you know, in the old days, if you were going after a gangster, you thought he was involved in narcotics trafficking, you'd execute a search warrant at his house, hoping to find drugs. Well, now you might do that same thing, but while you were there, you'd also collect all of his pictures, his photographs, his correspondence with his associates. Um, you might find other documentary evidence that shows like, oh, look at this. He signed a lease for this address in yeah. downtown Brooklyn, which I know is where this gang has their social club. So he's now connected to that social club. So all those little pieces of the puzzle, when you put them together, they show you the picture of an organization engaged in, in crime. And that's very, very powerful. That's what enables you to prosecute. Um, so, so generally speaking, the enterprise theory really took the FBI to the next level. And we started to think about network analysis is what we would call it today. Not just the person you're going after, but all the people they're connected to and how they correspond with or speak to or interact with those people and the money that they're associated with and the locations and, and cars and things they use to commit crimes. And that yeah. was the sort of investigative approach that enabled us to succeed, not just against organized crime, but ultimately against violent gangs, um, international narcotics distri distribution uh, organizations, and ultimately against Al-Qaeda. Yeah, you were able to step back. You know, I, I, I use this metaphor in the series of um, that uh, that uh, uh, someone in intelligence taught me of, you know, when you're when you're doing strategic analysis, it's, you're looking for the negative space, you know, put put right. all the pieces together and it will define a silhouette like those Warner Brothers cartoons that just, you know, Wiley e. Coyote ran through the wall. Um, you weren't there to see him run through the wall, but you could see his perfect silhouette. That's right. That's <laughs> you exactly put enough right. together and and you're also in the room with all the Acme boxes in the corner. So probably this is his space that you're in. Right. You know, you've got his address now and, and we could sort of draw, draw conclusions that it's not circumstantial. It's right there in front of us. It's just about stepping back and being able to see it. And I find the more we step back and step back. And, and and even the more time goes by with where more things can come to the surface, you could get this sort of better, bigger picture of how something's working in this realm of secrecy. You know, it's really hard to see in the dark. 
And these guys needed the dark. They had a very secret world. They knew how to operate in a, in a world of secrecy. They knew how to have everything go through oral tradition and as very little on paper as possible. Um, they spoke in code. <laughs> you know, they still yeah. do. It's just a, there's a culture um, that supports all of this, but underneath it all it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for vast sums of money. That's right. It, None of this would be going on. None of this would be happening to the communities that we all live in and the, what I call the realm of the light. Not, nothing if there wasn't just vast sums of money to be made. So Money is the fuel that drives these engines. It is the lubricant that keeps the inner workings going, that supplies the players with phones and cars and airline tickets and everything else you need. And it is the goal of what you're trying to get to. And, you know, obviously there's some ideologically, you know, motivated criminal acts like terrorism and things like that, but man, it doesn't happen without, without money and access to funds. Nothing does. Nothing does. And I don't even know if those ideologies would be there if there was a gangster behind it trying to make a bunch of money off of it in one way or another. It's, you know, destabilize a region in some part of the world where they can grab a bunch of heroin, right? Um, well, yeah. there's, there's, there's always that force at work. Um, it's the underworld is just always pushing, pushing, pushing on us, finding ways to capitalize off of human misery. That's right. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, uh, I don't really even want to end this conversation, but I've I've kept you for so long. Um, come back. We have four I'd more. I'd be happy seasons. to. I, <laughs> I love this stuff. It is such a joy. And to be able to talk about this instead of, uh, you know, I don't know. I a know. Lot of the other stuff. A lot of the other stuff. <laughs> let's, end, let's, let's wrap on that, though, really quickly, mm -hmm. because that is our current moment, just in a broad sense of... So now that you've had you've had all the experiences you've had in mm -hmm. the last, I guess it's thirty years now, if you look at it. Coming pretty close. Uh, is that yeah. old? I feel so old saying that because I, I think I might be older than you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I guarantee I feel older than you. Okay, all right. We, it's how we feel. It's the mileage. It's the That's mileage. Right. Um, okay, so in that thirty years, right mm -hmm. of of uh, you know near like twenty five let's say 25, 25 to 30 years uh, of being in the, at the Department of Justice, being at the FBI, being an investigator, looking at this world and starting, even though it was by, uh-oh, I made a mistake. Someone was at my wedding. Now mm -hmm. I'm over on the Russia desk. Um, pulling back from all that now, is it a, a narrative to pursue? I guess I'm asking you, Annie, I'm just gonna ask your advice. <laughs> And you could it. say something. You could say something now that could dismantle my entire, <laughs> my entire series. So I, I feel pretty confident in how I'm looking at things. But just in in, in your eyes, um, we pull way back from that silhouette in the wall, right? We know yeah. how much money is in there. With with the with when the Russian mafia came, it was astronomical, right? Because they were yes. also, you know, we've got these oligarchs that that didn't make their way over here for, or couldn't even get visas. Some of them. Um, that were robbing the Russian people, what uh, was now the Russian people, because it was mm -hmm. the Soviet Union, well, blind, right? Um, right, at, right. Even some of the former uh, uh, Soviet Union states like Ukraine, just sucking the gas out from underneath that, company, that yeah. country and capitalizing on that in criminal ways, right? So we, I call them mobligarchs because there's oligarchs, but then there's mobligarchs. Um, sure. 
Yeah. So pulling way back from that picture in the wall now and seeing all that, and especially with what you went through and the last four years, right? And it being right in the bullseye of a, of a certain person, right? Of like, I'm going to get rid of this mm -hmm. guy. I yep. think you just you freaked him out, right? Out of, no out question. Yeah. No question. You freaked him out. So uh, can we look at that and say, you know what? Maybe in the 70s and 80s, when those Russian gangsters, those crime bosses specifically, and their lieutenants who came with them, Mm -hmm. came in to our shores, washed ashore, and started partnering with the with the Cosa Nostra bosses, right? With those yes. crime families yep. and these major schemes. Perhaps we got invaded from the underworld up. Yeah, there's no, I, I thought you were gonna build to a much harder question. There's no question in my mind about that. I think we didn't know. Oh, my series continues. <laughs> yeah, no, really. Thank you, I, Andy. <laughs> I, I think there's, we didn't know what yeah. was happening while it was happening. It wasn't until, you know, the early 1990s that we said, oh my gosh. I mean, we, let, I'll speak now as my, you know, for my former colleagues, like the FBI didn't get on this thing until the early 90s. And at that point, you already had, you know, the aluminum wars in, in, yeah. in Russia and things like that. So I think we open, we um, we're a little late to the game, um, but I'll, I will give us credit for realizing that if those sorts that those criminal fortunes made their way to this country, they would have an almost limitless ability to start corrupting the elements of our society that we all depend on. So yeah. law enforcement, politics, government, business, you're talking about corporate massive, sector, corporate sector, business, free, free and fair trade. When you inject these massive, massive fortunes into a, a totally open society and knowing that those fortunes are being controlled by people who don't care, they live in that other world. They live in that underworld. They're willing to do anything it takes to maximize their own advantage and their own profit. That is a very, very dangerous thing. And so we started looking at locally, trying to stamp out these these little brush fires of organized criminal activity in the Russian speaking community. But we also tried to do it more broadly, more strategically to keep an eye on these major players overseas in places like not just Moscow, but also London and also Rome and also Austria uh, to ensure that those people who we were most concerned about couldn't get here very easily until they, you know, um, you know, some of them obviously fought those, those, designations and those denials of, yeah. of entry. But um, yeah, I think we were late to the game, but we tried to kind of uh, make up time. We did some good work, but it's relentless. Yeah. And I think what you're seeing a lot of, uh, this is just speaking for myself personally, my own opinion, um, the idea that we might have might, I say might, because I didn't know at the time, right. but that we might have someone who has been elected the president of the United States who has enough bizarre and kind of inexplicable connections to Russians that we know of 
and might have taken assistance, help, money, whatever from Russians and or the Russian government to secure that position of president of the United States. That's exactly the kind of corruption that we were worried about in the mid nineties. That's why we started working this stuff in the early nineties. That's what we were trying to keep out of here. Um, and so when that prospect started looming for us, we felt like this is something we need to investigate. And so we did. Yeah, you did. I'm so grateful you did actually. Oh, thank you. I'm I glad th I did too. I don't, Yeah. obviously um, things turned out really tough for me and my family. And I wish that that had not happened, but I don't have any regrets about the decisions that we made about what we thought our job was at the time yeah. and how I still think about that today. Well, we'll come back and we'll talk more about these gangsters. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. Anytime. Feel free. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Stephanie. I've really enjoyed it. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to Season 1, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and are sit-down episodes on Thursdays, wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.